Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Mark. Today's episode 152, and we're going to be interviewing Chris C. How are you doing, Chris? Great. Good to be here. Glad to have you. That's awesome. Um, we were just chatting a little bit. Seems like we're both uh, excited to do this. So let's dive in and get the party started. Tell me about your childhood. So I was uh, born and raised um, in a small town in Long Island called Manhasset, middle class uh, upbringing. Um, matter of fact, um, I, I say middle class, but the majority of the, the town is a lot of Irish Catholic stockbrokers. So um, we were on the lower end of the spectrum. My parents were divorced when I was five. I have a, a brother that's seven years older. Um, I'm 71, just to give you some sort of time frame. Um, and my mother, um, everything was a, basically a normal upbringing from the standpoint that I lived with my mother um, and my brother, loved the school that I was going to. Um, but How did the divorce affect you? Um, well, I was so young at the time, and what affected me is having to leave my mother every other weekend and go into the into Manhattan. And my my father was remarried. I didn't like. Uh, the person who he was remarried to at the time. So it was very, very upsetting to me. And I started to get into trouble very early on, like in second, third grade. Um, what kind of trouble? Uh, I, um, just disciplinary kind of things. But to give you some idea, when they talk about um, addiction and being genetic, um, my... Um, family on my mother's side, Irish, all cops, all alcoholics. On my father's side is an Italian family. Everyone had their act together. Um, they came from Italy, good, hardworking people. So I grew up in a place where almost every other weekend that I was with my mother, we would go to my aunt and uncle's house and everyone was just trashed totally intoxicated, nonstop drinking. So I, you know, thought that that was normal. Um, I didn't take my first drug, which was alcohol, till about the age of 13. Um, and it didn't really do anything for me. I did it to be with everyone else. But the, the thing that really changed my life dramatically was my mother dying at 14, she had breast cancer, and she was my rock, my world. Um, so my father, uh, 
and his wife, my stepmother, didn't want to move me into the city. At that point, my brother was 21. He's graduating from college. He was going into the Green Berets. And they didn't want me to move to the city with them. So they sent me to a school out on Long Island, out in Southampton. And within the first 30 days that I was there, um, I was raped and molested by an older student, a senior. Um, and that happened repeatedly for the next six months. And I, I had no voice. I couldn't say anything with threats that he would um, beat the crap out of me. Um, my roommate as well was involved. And, you know, it's funny. I, I was interviewed on a podcast about four months ago, and I rarely, rarely bring this up. Um, and, and a lot of addicts, a lot of our stories, and a lot of our addiction, I've discovered, comes from some trauma of some kind. For a lot of addicts, it may not have to do with trauma, but the more that I start disclosing my story, I hear others disclosing theirs about some kind of trauma, which was the segue to addiction. So um, I ended up, uh, I don't know if I got tossed out of that school. I believe I was tossed out of that school because my only voice was for me to get into trouble. Um, what kind of trouble? Any kind of, again, disciplinary actions, uh, stealing, cursing, whatever mm -hmm. I could do to get into trouble. Um, because, again, I didn't know what to say. I couldn't certainly tell anyone what was going on. And uh, so I went to the to the next school, to another private school in, uh, in another part of Long Island. In that school, I was thrown out within two years. That was more um, failing grades, doing miserable. Um, so the third school, now this is, yeah, the, by the time I got to the third school, now I'm 15 years old. I'm a freshman. Um, and I was very athletic, loved sports, loved basketball. This school had lacrosse, which I excelled in. And someone comes up to me one day and said, listen, I'm giving certain people B12 shots. I said, B12 shots? I said, for what? He said, you're going to have more energy than you've ever experienced before. So I said, well, this sounds interesting. And the first time he gave me a shot, which was in my butt, um, it was unbelievable. Well, of course, later to find out that it was crystal meth. Oh, my God. Uh, and within, uh, within two weeks, of course, I had to have this. So Why did he do that? Who, who did that? He was a local drug dealer. The, when you go to boarding school, there's a terminology called dagos and dagos and some people thought that's a term for italians yeah in boarding schools actually means got people that would come to school during the day and then go home okay so he was a local dealer up in newburgh new york um and um so that i went from a few beers several years prior to that to 
within a month, I was mainlining crystal meth. Um, so that lasted for two years. I did. It was the first time I, I actually got invited back. The Who shows you had a mainline? Because you said the first shot was in your butt. Who shows yeah. you had a mainline? It was this. It was this this kid who had given me the shot, and I I asked him later on. I said, "Well, why didn't you? Why didn't we just mainline this off?" He says, "Because if I did that to you, you never would have tried it." Um, and at that point, I didn't care the rhyme or the reason. I had to have it. I was I was strong out as soon as I had that first. You know, no, I had to have it. Um, so, uh, so I became uh, his. One more, one more time. What age were you? I was fifteen at this time. Okay. So there I am, mainlining crystal meth, easy to get, dealing it, um, and finally, by the second year, I was thrown out of that school, and then went to a Catholic boarding school in Connecticut. Now, this is now I'm in my junior year. And uh, the alcohol uh, was rampant. I mean, I was drinking all the time. Um, at that time, we were taking what was called uh, Robitussin DM, which at that time, the, the drug companies uh, were a lot more permissive with what they put in these cough medicines. So the, the cough medicine back then, today you'd need a prescription for it. Yeah. Uh, and so we called it Zooming. So basically you would drink a bottle of this cough medicine and it'd be like you're on a, a trip for like six to eight hours. Um, so matter of fact, that's what they called me, Captain Zoom, because I was constantly yeah. Zooming. Um and again, always in trouble. Um, I was dealing drugs to, to keep my habit going while I was in school. Another Dago was the one that was getting me the drugs. Um, people were not aware. They just thought I was zooming. But in essence, I was also shooting crystal meth. And, you know, no one I did not tell anyone that there. They just knew that I was a I was a drug addict. Um, and. You know, I wasn't long for that school. They eventually uh, caught me dealing and they threw me out. What's interesting is that my father, the week before I got thrown out, the headmaster, who was a priest, told my father that, listen, we can't keep him here. He's on drugs. Um, you know, this this is not going to work. So I'm sitting out listening to my father and this headmaster talking, and my father gives him a check for $5,000 to, to keep me in the school. So even though I'm saying, listen, I need help, I'm in trouble, okay, the answer was to keep me there because, again, my father didn't want to have anything to as far as bringing me and live with him and his wife. You know, didn't want that you know, uh, situation up, upset. But anyway, a week later, they came into my room, they found drugs, and I was I was thrown out. So um, this particular school was what's called prepping for a college. A lot of boarding schools, the, the, you know, the decent ones have colleges that they try to send the majority of their students to. In, in that case, 
it was Marquette University in Milwaukee. So I knew a lot of the seniors that had gone out there. So when I got thrown out, I knew that my father, who was very, very physically abusive of me all through my teen years, um, and I know he was going to come up to beat the shit out of me um, for, for getting thrown out of the school. Um, and I just could not face that, face, uh, you know, him coming up, listening to his, you know, emotional and physical abuse. This was in November of, I think it was 1969. So I hitchhiked, hitchhiked to Logan Airport in in Boston. I, re I didn't have any money. I think I maybe had $20 or something at the time. So I hitchhiked to Logan Airport and I panhandled a ticket to, to Milwaukee. So I went around begging for money, enough to get a ticket to Milwaukee. I, of course, stay with these seniors that uh, had had gone there, you know, the the uh, year before. Um, and that lasted about three or four weeks. And finally, uh, my cousins, I had no communication with my family during this time. My cousins reached out to me. Um, they said, listen, if we get you help, would you be willing to come home and get help? I said, absolutely. So they brought me home. I said, I, I went with the understanding that my father wasn't going to come and be involved because, again, I was so deathly afraid of him physically, which that's a whole other segue of, of, of my story is how he would handle me. He didn't, you know, during that time, my, my father's family were immigrants. So drugs, well, you know, it's, it's one thing to be a foreigner and an immigrant. But it's another thing to be totally foreign is what, what drugs were like in the 60s. Um, and he didn't know how to handle that with me. So his way of handling that was beat the shit out of me and hope that I would change and that his uh, the way he was treating me would change me. And if anything, it just made me worse. Um, so, again, all this time going back to what happened in the first boarding school, um, not dealing with that, go into the first treatment center in New York City, a place called Gracie Square Hospital. And it was more of a psychiatric hospital. And in that time, in the 60s, um, the only people they knew how to treat were heroin addicts. And they treated heroin addicts with methadone. That was the way heroin addicts in the 60s were treated. I was not a heroin addict, okay? I was a crystal meth freak. I was a, a, co a coconut, a coke freak. Um, and they didn't really have any way to deal with me. You know, they didn't even want to say that I was an addict. They, what they said was, is that you have deep psychological issues. Well, yeah, obviously I've got deep psychological issues. That's why I'm using, you know. So they ended up, because they didn't know what to do with people like me. Uh, if you're a heroin addict, you got immediately help, okay? So here I am, the, your typical hospital scene with the group of you know 15 to 20 people sitting in a circle, and the majority of the people were either addicted to opioids or heroin, and I was the only one that was addicted that didn't have a heroin habit. So this, they bring this psychiatrist in, he says, listen, He's bipolar. 
He may be schizophrenic, okay? And I think what we need to do is give him shock treatments. He says, because obviously he's, he's very depressed. And shock treatments are the way to help him with his drug problem. So 30 shock treatments later, okay, um, which, again, if you know nothing about shock treatments, one of the effects of shock treatments is it, it blocks your short-term memory. Um, so literally, you can forget people. You can, you know, forget where, how did you get here? Who were these people? Um, and needless to say, after three months of that facility, which, by the way, by the second month, I had a nurse bringing me in scotch and giving me pills, barbiturates, okay? Um, and he did this for about a week, not knowing that this nurse was gay and what he was setting me up for is to be his bitch <laughs> on this hospital floor. So as soon as he made his first you know, move, I said, what are you, out of your fucking mind? You know, I'm not gay, That's, that ain't gonna happen. And immediately, of course, the scotch start, stopped coming. The Back in those days, they called them uh, yellow jackets and two and alls, and those are the things he was giving me. So I, I had just enough of a habit to, to get me sick, okay? Um, and finally, they, they found out about this, and they were more concerned about my family suing the hospital because of what this nurse was doing. So at that time in New York, there was a guy by the a state senator. His name was uh, Senator Jacob Javits. And there was a program at this hospital called the New York State Psychiatric Institute. Um, and they were treating, and this was at, at Columbia Presbyterian in northern Manhattan, just south of the Bronx in, in Manhattan Heights. Um, and they had a two-year program you had to commit if they took you into this program you had to commit you had to sign a contract for two years okay you had to stay there so and the way what they were doing was they were treating people like me so non uh, narcotic addicted people who suffered from depression with a drug called lithium um and so I'm like nine months into this program and there was about there was like a hundred and something patients, patients. It was a huge facility and the women would be on one side and the men would be on the other. And because of my, uh, my ability to charm people uh, and to be in the middle of things, I was like the patient representative for the men to bring any of our complaints, whatever, to the nurses, doctors, what have you. So I was in somewhat of an interesting position. I, now I've been clean this nine months because it's a lockdown facility. You don't you don't leave there. You're locked down. Um, so that was the good news. I I couldn't use. There was no one sneaking drugs or anything like that in. So that was probably the only good part of the story. So one day one of the one of the kids who on the men's side says to me, listen, I want to have sex with this girl on the other side. I want you to create a scene by the nurse's station and we're going to sneak 
past the nurse, go into the, uh, like the showers past the nurses stations. That's all you have to do. I said, fine, of course. So of course they go in, they do their thing. The next day, the girl who ended up, she was 15. Okay. Says that she was raped by this guy. Okay. So who do they come to? Okay. Saying that this, you know, this was my fault, my responsibility, but because there was some, you know, it was a state and federally funded facility. And this contract meant was that I had to stay within a state program. And what they did was they sent me to a place and you said you're from New Jersey. So I don't know if you're familiar with Manhattan, but yeah, no, I know. you do know Manhattan a little bit. When you I, come work, I work there. Okay. When you come across the Triborough Bridge, there's a place called Ward's Island. Okay. And Ward's Island, there's, a, there's three buildings, and that's Manhattan State Hospital. Okay. And it's for the criminally insane. So if you look at this building from, if you're going across the Triborough to this day, okay, you'll see there's bars on the windows. It's, it looks like a prison, but it's a, it's a, it's for the criminally insane. So, um, so they they come into my room after this confrontation, you know, we're, she's accusing us, we're going to, we can't charge you with rape, but as far as we're concerned, that's what you did. Okay. And this is where you're going to finish your time at this state institute. So they come, they pick me up in a, uh, like a police type ambulance. They bring me to this place. And it literally is like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That exact scene, Jack Nicholson, that type of thing with the television in a cage, with people walking around with green tops and bottoms, Manhattan State uh, Hospital patient. Okay. And the first night I get there, okay, some guy stands on my and they they medicate you heavily heavily with thorazine and um this guy stood stood on my bed which i didn't realize starts pissing on my head okay oh my god (laughs) and i start getting into a huge brawl um and these two other patients get involved one takes a chair i get hit over the head cut my head open this is my first night. I'm not, I'm not even there four hours, and this is what what happened. And um, so I was there for about three months, and I said, you know what? I can't. I can't do this. I can't stay here. This is crazy. I'm not criminally insane. This is just not right. And the only way to get off that island is if you drive in. You know, a vehicle can, of course, can drive in and drive off. Okay. Or there was a bridge, again, to this day, there's a bridge that goes from Ward's Island into Harlem. So one day, like in the beginning of, end of May, beginning of June, they take us all outside. It's not like you can run away because if you you want to try to leave by where the cars come and go, there's a guard shack there. There's no way you're getting off that way, which you could if you could make it to that bridge. And... That's what I did. I I got to that bridge. I ran across the bridge into Harlem. I got on the subway. Um, I I guess it was like 116th. No, again, no money. 
okay? Just me and my, my green outfit and um, go down to the village, to the West Village, and again, start panhandling. But what's amazing is that I didn't get stopped, okay? And there I am, it clearly says Manhattan State Hospital. I mean, I'm dressed in greens, unless people thought I was a doctor. I mean, um, and I lasted about three days on the street, and I finally get picked up, and I'm brought to uh, Beth Israel Hospital, which was actually a private hospital, but that was the closest hospital to where I was picked up. And I ended up staying there for about three months. Um, and while I was there, I met this drug crowd and I came out and um, stayed with them uh, for a, an extended period of time. And then the next several years, truthfully, were uh, I be started becoming more connected to my family. I wasn't using as much as I had been using up to that point. I was going to ask, you moved in with these people, were you using? Oh, yeah, this was a heavy, the, the, actually, that's a whole other story, but it's a porn crowd. They were making porn films. So there was a lot of drug use and a lot of insanity. Um, so I was right in my, you know, my element for all intents purposes. And as long as you're doing drugs you and you're a druggie, you can basically be, you know, fit into any kind of environment. So that was the environment I lived in with these this group of people. So um, after that, I started working. My uh, father, my grandfather, when he came over, started a manufacturing business in the Upper East Side of New York. Uh, ex yeah, the Upper East Side of New York. And this business to this day, it's three generations. My brother now is running that business this is his own company uh presently um but i went to work in this factory for my family um and i i basically at that time i was using but it was much more controlled using it wasn't like the insanity that i experienced for all those years up to that point but again nothing had changed so um, I started dealing. What happened was I started dealing. I get busted by the DEA. Um, I, I have a choice. And at that time, it was called the Rockefeller Laws. And uh, at that time, if you, if you had more than, I want to say it was like a gram. I could be wrong on this. But it was some ridiculously small amount. You would get 25 years to life. Wow. Just, just an insane, it was the Rockefeller laws. And of course, I'm, I get arrested with a direct sale to the DEA for like a quarter of an ounce or something, half an ounce, something like that. Um, and I had a choice. I was going to be facing 25 years to life. I became a confidential informant and I became a very good confidential informant. Um, and that became like my focus and that was that was like my new high um but obviously it's a very dangerous game so after doing that for a few years and going into the the dea and the to their uh, to their headquarters which is in lower manhattan 
in the middle of the summer wearing long sleeve shirts because I'm shooting coke at night and going in to have confidential informant meetings with them during the day, um, you know, it, it was getting insane. So finally they came to me. They said, listen, this last bus that we did, these are not good people. They're part of organized crime. Um, and, at, and at this time, so I, um, you have a choice. You can either, we can either help you get into the witness protection program or we can help you leave. Um, it's really your choice. And I said, well, listen, I don't want to be in the witness protection program. Are you telling me I can't see my family ever again? That, that just does not sound that appealing to me. Um, so I ended up going to Florida, where I am presently. And so this is, we're going back now to 1978. I'm trying to, it's hard to fast forward all this because there was so much going on. So I moved down here, and soon after, I meet my wife-to-be, Robin. And Robin uh, was an addict like me, and she was a speed freak. And um, so, and we were both with different people, and we, we actually met at a dinner party. It was the craziest thing. We both went outside for a smoke, and we just connected immediately. And within 24 hours, Robin and I were together. Now, what I didn't share with her is that I had to go back to New York in about six months for sentencing. So even though I had done all of this activity, and even though they were prepared to put me in the witness protection program, I still had to go through the process of being sentenced by the judge where the district attorney makes their suggestions. Okay. So, um, so I, you know, I told this to Robin, I said, listen, I believe what they're, you know, this, we're just going to go through this exercise, but you know, anything, you know, can happen. She goes, no, I'm with you. Let's, let's do this. So we went back, they gave me lifetime probation. Um, and so, you know, Robin and I spent uh, the next two years up in New York, three years up in New York, um, dealing drugs, continuing like like nothing had happened, like like they wanted to move to Florida. Now I'm back in New York doing the same thing all over again, the insanity that is so prevalent. Um, and to just to fast track it a little bit, we ended up, because Robin's family was down here, came back, and we both got into treatment. So, um, and that was in July of 1984. And um, Robin and I, again, all the insanity in our relationship was just uh, crazy. Just, you know, crazy. We, we Robin gave birth to twin daughters, my daughter Stephanie and and Christina, and this part of the story is much more important than than the first part. Um, and Robin and I really became involved. Um, well, the first five years we were using when the kids were around, so we would give the kids to a babysitter. We'd say we'd be back in a day and not show up for a week. Okay, or um, I I would not uh, go anywhere without a gun. I would strip search her thinking she was holding out on me, um, you know, just in, insanity. 
And finally, we did get into, uh, as I said, into recovery in July of 1984. And that was life changing because I never knew anything about Narcotics Anonymous. Certainly, when I went to that first institution, I, I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew about alcoholics, but not Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. But Narcotics Anonymous saved our lives without question. Um, and we both became very, very involved in the service structure of the fellowship. Um, and it it just... It was a it was a good good life uh, for for many many years, um, but what what ended up happening is that Robin we Robin was in her seventeenth year of recovery and she had surgery, um, and the doctor prescribed Percocets. Now Robin was an addict. The doctor knows she's an addict. She had the ability to say no. Um, she didn't. Uh, and the doctor saw no responsibility on his part. He just knew that after surgery, you write Percocets. And that those Percocets is what led to her demise. So we ended up separating. She and I had a very, very successful business, a uh, investigation business. Um, th just to let you know. I ended up getting all of my civil rights uh, uh, restored uh, in New York and Florida. I made a decision that if someone is aware of who I am and I've set them up, you know, life goes on. But now this is so many years past that, that I just believe that God will do with me as, as, as he will. So, um, so anyway, so Robin goes to a facility in St. Kitt in the Bahamas, and they they were treating addicts with a hallucinogenic drug called Ibogaine. And um, a friend of ours suggested that she do this. It was sponsored by the University of Miami. And Robin had a terrible reaction from it. She did not get the benefits of it whatsoever. And um, she came back and we were separated at this time because I just could not be, I found a bag full of Percocets one day in our closet. And I said, listen, you have to go. I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. Um, so when she came back to her condominium, the therapist that she had met down in St. Kitt says, listen, I'd like to come to Florida and get some work. Can I stay with you? So she says, sure. And the therapist once he's here, which he ended up not being a therapist, um, says, listen, I know things didn't go well with you and St. Kitt, but I can recreate that what they were trying to do with you here with a completely different drug. Would you be willing to do that? And that's, of course, that's exactly what she wanted to hear. And um, the night, this was in December of 2000 or 2001, and I'd spoken to her. I, I, I told her I love her. She said, I love you. Um, and the next day I get a phone call from the Aventura Police Department down here. Your wife's been in an accident. An accident? I just spoke to her. What kind of accident? Can't get into it. You got to come here. And when I get there, um, 
what I find out is that this therapist, the pseudo therapist, had given her ecstasy and she had a massive stroke, um, lost all brain function, um, and we had to take her off life support uh, two days later. This guy ended up was charged with first degree murder because in Florida, there's laws that if, in fact, you contribute to someone's death, now even more so with opioids and fentanyl, this law is really, um, you know, something good, I feel. Um, and he was finally sentenced to, to seven years in charge with manslaughter. So we had made a promise, the kids and I, Stephanie, Chrissy and I, my two girls, my twins, that we were going to do something in Robin's name, that we would do something special in her name to help uh, women, to help women addicts. Because Robin was tight, had a very tight group of, of female friends were addicts. And that's basically what we what we said. Um, and we tried, we created the Robin Foundation at that time. And we tried making it work. And I don't know if we were just all so lost because of losing her, that it just, it never became really anything. And then as soon as, and my, my daughter, Christina, who's in the treatment and recovery field for many, many years, she's a harm reduction specialist expert for that matter. And Stephanie, who lived with me after Robin died, started going downhill. So she took a complete opposite path than her twin sister, Christina. And Stephanie ended up having uh, a boy, Christopher, my, my grandson, my beloved grandson, and a daughter, Mia, we call her Mia Robin. And Stephanie, uh, you know, was a full-blown addict, had a very, very hard, hard story um, you know, from from being homeless for extended periods of time to being tricked out. Um, and it was just hard to think that we could possibly lose someone again. And of course, with the opioids and fentanyl in the play in uh, September of 2019, we lost Stephanie to an overdose. Matter of fact, uh, when we got the toxicology report, there was no heroin in it. It was only fentanyl and I think morphine. So she didn't even have a chance. So at that point, Chrissy said to me, now we have to do something with the foundation. Now we've got to do something meaningful. We need to impact our community. Well, soon after that, you're going into 2020 is when the uh, the pandemic with COVID striked. And um, I just didn't see us doing anything. And the goal was always to have build halfway houses for women um, in certain areas of Broward County, Florida, because there's only three that are certified right now, where there's many facilities for men. So um, we decided that we were going to get involved with passing out Narcan, but more importantly, training organizations how to use Narcan for whether it's their employees, whether it's their guests, whatever the case may be. And at that time, Broward County was number one 
in the state for overdoses and number two in the United States. So there was a tremendous need to do this. I said, well, now the foundation can do something with purpose. So that's what the foundation has been focusing on now for the last year and a half. Um, and we'll continue to, to do that. But now we're at a place where we're going to start doing fundraising to start building these communities is, is what we uh, aspire to do. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a very large story to tell. I've tried to give you like uh, the, the highlights of my own personal story, but the most important part is what we're doing today. And my daughter, Christina, is uh, my saving grace. She really is. She, God bless her. Um, she, she forced us forward, you know, and that we had to make their deaths meaningful. Um, and that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. And when you hear that you've given Narcan to someone, and this has happened just in the last two months, that four people's lives were saved because of the Narcan that we gave to them, that makes everything I went through in life, including losing my daughter and my wife, have meaning, have purpose. Um, so that's that's really, um, I don't know how we are on time, but I, I, I try to, to fill in as much as I could and give you the highlights. But as I said, the most important thing is is where we're at today uh, and what the mission is, not just from a foundation standpoint, but personally. Um, I, it kills me when I see people losing children because from 18 to 45 is you know, the lives that are being lost today, not just in Florida, in Jersey as well. Um, and the day does not go by in New Jersey where someone's not dying because of, of fentanyl and opioids that are in our streets. Um, so I will do anything I can in my community, you know, um, to to start changing the dynamics of that, of this pandemic that we're in. So that's it. You tell me. <laughs> no, that was great. That was great. You said you, uh, like you said, you hit all the right points and the highlights and I appreciate you coming on the podcast today. So is there anything else you want to say about your foundation? Anything where people can touch with you? Is there any like website yeah, that you can go to get more info? It, yeah, I, you know, I wish uh, it could be more global, but we can only serve the needs within our own community. That's our purpose. So right now, um, and no one likes to ask people for money, but that's what we're doing now. We're going to continue to train people for free because I feel that we have an ethical and moral obligation to do that. Um, I work with a great group um, of, of people. It's the Project Opioids of South Florida, an incredible uh, organization. We're involved with our community on every, every level. We have a police department that I'm proud to say um, are leading the way. And when they go out, even their patrol officers have Narcan and they're going out to save lives, not to arrest their way through this problem. Because you can't arrest your way 
through this problem. That's part of it. Yeah, let's get some of these scumbags off the street that are knowingly giving people fentanyl. I I, want to share this with you. I was on a a conference last week. We have what's called a CRT surveillance committee meeting that the United Way sponsors. And that's another incredible organization, the United Way. And the the young lady who's for the Broward Sheriff's Office was saying that there's no, the last three or four people that ended up in the morgue, there was no heroin in the mix. It was all fentanyl. So would you tell, why would people do this? It's like, it's just boggling to me. But back to the foundation. Yes, we need help. We're going to make an impact. We're going to um, take in as many women as we can and and change lives. It's not going to be a short-term program. It's going to be a long-term program and we're just looking to make an impact we just want to do um the right thing in our own little community so if you're a woman or even if you're a man and you're in trouble okay please call us we have tremendous resources if we can't help you directly absolutely christina has the contacts to get you the help that you need we don't want people dying okay it's unacceptable it's unacceptable. People don't need to die anymore, okay? Because there's help out there. And as South Florida may have a huge drug problem, but we also have a huge help problem, the help you know, initiative going on. So um, please, if you hear this, and whether you're out of state, wherever you are, and you need help, let us help you. Thank you. No, again, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. It sounds like you're doing good things. Yeah. Like you said before, making, you know, it all mean something. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. No. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? Or actually, I have one last question. Sure. Do you have any advice for people that are listening to the podcast? Well, if you're an addict, okay, it's a lot more dangerous than it's ever been in, in, at least in my lifetime, um, you can go out now and buy a bag of, of pot and not know whether or not fentanyl has been sprayed on it, which we're learning now that a lot of pot that's coming in from Mexico has been sprayed with fentanyl. OK, for, for what reason? We don't we don't know other than they want to have the best pot in town. And with kids, the pills are looking better than the real thing. That's how good it's gotten. And for $200, you can go buy a, a, a pill press, okay, and make pure fentanyl pills. There's uh, one of our volunteers, brothers, 21, um, a few years ago, uh, college kid, good-looking kid, buys uh, a Xanax pill, and he was dead the next morning. The Xanax pill was pure fentanyl. So if you're an addict, please call. Get off Get off the train. Stop it now. And if you're someone that needs help and you're ready to get help and you don't know where to call, I don't care if you're in California, Washington, please call us. We will get you the help you need. That I promise you. I'm committed to helping save lives wherever you are. So that's it. Thank you for the question. No, no problem. So I guess that's a good place to wrap it up. Yeah, for sure. All right, my friend, sit tight.
For everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can also check us out at www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find plenty of different types of resources as well as a body of free literature that's available all for free. We can also be seen on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, and Instagram to check us out. Once again, I hope you like what you saw and heard. And until next time.